Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church Podcast. This is our Lord's Day Sermon. We pray that as we declare the Word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's Word, and may the Lord be with you. It's such a beautiful thing when God weaves together church services in ways that are beyond our ability to understand. A moment ago, Derek was talking about um, the hills and how they remind us of God's covenants. And there's a theme in the Bible that has to do with mountains. That's the introduction to my sermon, actually. And I love how God weaved those two thoughts together. In the ancient world, mountains were considered to be some of the most sacred spaces in topography. In a sense, if you were climbing up the mountain, it was, in, it was like you were climbing up to God because you were nearer to the presence of God who dwelt in the heavens. Mountains symbolized nearness to God. That is why all of the altars and the temples are built on top of mountains. For instance, the tabernacle in Jerusalem, built right at the base of Mount Sinai, or the tabernacle in the wilderness. The Temple of Jerusalem, built on a mountain. Jerusalem is a city that sits on top of a mountain. All of the altars in the high places, even the pagans built their altars, not in the valleys, but on the tops of hills and on the tops of mountains. If you remember, Abraham sacrificed his son, or was going to sacrifice his son, on top of a mountain. You remember Elijah battles with the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, or Carmel. The covenants themselves are drawn up on the tops of mountains from all the way to the Adamic covenant, all the way to the Davidic covenant. Adam, was his, his covenant was with God on top of Mount Eden. I'll explain that in a moment. Noah, his covenant was drawn up by God on Mount Ararat. Abraham, his covenant was, was concluded and crescendoed on Mount Moriah. Moses on Mount Sinai. David on the top of the hill, that, uh, the mountain where Jerusalem would eventually be built. Now, you ask, why did I mention Eden? Eden is a garden. We think about gardens being in low topography. Well, the way that the Jewish people viewed Eden was a mountain paradise. It, it, it says that there were four rivers that flowed out from Eden. So if you're going to have rivers that flow out from somewhere, then that somewhere has got to be a higher geography, higher elevation than the surrounding areas. Also, in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14 in a symbolic way, the writer calls it the mountain, the holy mountain of God. And he's talking about Eden in that passage. So all of the covenants are made on mountains. And the reason for that is because God is demonstrating the sacredness of the covenant. This covenant that he's making is something that's not happenstance or commonplace. He's calling the people up into covenant life. Also, he is showing that he is an exalted God. That he is a God who is high in the heavens. And he's also showing that he's a gracious God. That he would stoop down low to meet with his people on the tops of mountains. This idea that mountains are all over the Bible is significant. And it may not be the way that we think today. We think today going to the mountain is, is sort of a, a fun weekend trip. Or we climb the mountain or we put on you know, our, our hiking gear or whatever. But to them, mountains were sacred. They were places where you could go and meet with the Almighty. And God, in His grace, uses that convention of thinking to make covenants, to build temples, and to meet with His people, which demonstrates a lot about God and how He condescends to our level and uses our thinking to enter into and incarnate in our space so that we can know Him. 
Now, if that's the case where God uses mountains in the Bible, God has these great events that happen at mountains in the Bible, it should not be any surprise that Jesus has many mountain events in his life as well. It shouldn't surprise us that many of the most consequential events in Jesus's life actually happen on mountains. For instance, Jesus was born at the foothill of a mountain. The, the, the town of Bethlehem was right in the foothills of the Judean plain or the Judean mountain. It wasn't a high mountain like the Himalayas, but in that region, it was considered a mountainous region, the hills of Judah. John, Jesus was baptized near a mountain. The rivers that flowed, the Jordan River that flowed, flowed near a mountainous region. So Jesus was baptized like the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, washing themselves and cleansing themselves before they entered into the presence of God. Jesus is washed at a mountain. Jesus preached his first sermon after he is tempted in the wilderness. It says in Luke uh, chapter 4 that he was tempted on a high mountain. Then he leaves the temptation. He comes and he preaches his first sermon like Moses on a high mountain. Where Moses at Mount Sinai taught the people of God all of the law. Jesus sits in the Sermon on the Mount, apropos title, and he teaches his people the new law, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's midlife examples as well. Uh, he fed the 5,000 on a mountain. He performed healings on that same mountain. He was transfigured on a mountain. He gave his Olivet Discourse, which is the greatest uh, instance of prophecy ever given, the most specific prophecy ever, getting, ever given of the downfall of Jerusalem. And it came to pass in perfect clarity. He gave that on the Mount of Olives. He was crucified on the mountain hill of Calvary. He was buried in the mountain tomb in the city of Jerusalem. And in the Great Commission, he gave his commission to his disciples on a mountain and then ascended to heaven on the Mount of Olives. The most major events of Jesus' life happen on a mountain. If we don't pay attention to the details, we'll miss that fact. Well, being as that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives for his high priestly prayer, he's also having this moment that we've been looking at on a mountain as well. Now, if you remember the Old Testament priests, what they would do is they're not in service all the time, especially the high priest. The high priest, once a year, and we're talking about the Day of Atonement, would come to the mountain tabernacle or the mountain temple. And he would do two things before he would enter the presence of God. He would purify himself and then he would prepare himself at the base of the mountain. He would purify himself with water by washing his body ceremonially. And then he would don an outer garment that was to cover his nakedness. And that sort of imagery back all the way to the Garden of Eden where Adam was covered, his nakedness was covered by God himself. The high priest in the Old Testament was to have a white linen garment that covers his nakedness to show that God is the one who is purifying his priest to serve his people. All of this happened at the base of a mountain. Then after that, the high priest would prepare. He would not only purify himself and get ready, he would prepare himself and the first thing he, was do, he would do is he would put on three layers of clothing. The first was that initial garment that covered his nakedness. The second was a blue linen ephod, which set him apart as the high priest. And that really applied to the Aaronic priesthood, a royal line of priests. And then after that, he would put on two pieces of, of, of clothing that are strange to us, but, but they had great symbolic relevance. He would put on a chest piece, and the chest piece had 12 stones, 12 jewels that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And what he was essentially symbolizing in that is that the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, are near and dear to the heart of God. 
The priest was representing God the Father's love for his people in wearing these 12 stones these, that represented the priesthood. The second piece of clothing that he would wear is sort of like shoulder pads, like he's going into the presence of God protected, almost like a football player is going into the line protected. He's armoring up. These shoulder pads were called filigrees. You don't have to remember that. But inside those golden filigrees would be two onyx stones, one on this side, one on that side. And on each of the stones were written six out of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what it's symbolizing is that the, holy, or is that the high priest would carry God's people into the presence of God because you bear your burden on your shoulders. So he would go to the mountain, he would wash himself, he would clothe himself, and he would bear God's people into God's presence because God's people are near and dear to the heart of God. And they are born into his presence by the representative, by the high priest. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in John 13 through 17. In John 13, instead of going to the river to cleanse himself like the high priest of old, he got down and he washed his disciples' feet and he cleansed them. And then he went back to the table and he put on his high priestly outer garment and he sat down as priest. And then here, instead of... Instead of putting on the, the high priestly chest piece, he himself is carrying his people into the presence of God through this prayer. He doesn't put on three layers of clothing like the high priest does. He goes through three layers of prayer where he is clothing himself with prayer so that he can represent his people to the Father. And he's carrying his people into the presence of God on his own shoulders. And he will do so in John 19 when he carries the cross on his shoulders to bear his people into the presence of God through his death, burial, and resurrection. What Jesus is doing in these passages is he's being our high priest. And he's not being a high priest that can be, that, that can, that can be ended or the line can be destroyed. He is a forever priest. And he's forever serving us forever caring for us, forever purifying us to be in God's presence. And he's doing it through this high priestly prayer, and eventually he will do this through his own sacrifice. The story of John is the crescendoing story of the priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. And that is what Jesus is doing here. So I say that to you just to give you another aspect of the beauty that's going on in the text to show you that Jesus is the one who brings us into the presence of God, and he's doing that here on the Mount of Olives. He's doing it on a mountain, just like all the high priests did before. Now today, we're going to look at John 17 again. We're going to look at the high priestly prayer, and we're going to move past verses 1 through 5, which focus on Christ. Focus on his glory that he has always had from all time with the Father. It focuses on the salvation that he's going to bring to his people that is going to give him great glory. And we're going to move beyond that now to verses 6 through 10, which begin the section where Jesus is talking about his people. Today we're going to look at not eternal life, which is what we looked at last week. Today we're going to look at what is temporal life with Christ actually going to look like. What kind of life does this high priest carve out for you and I? What does it mean that we belong to him? What does it mean that we're saved? These are questions that we're going to answer today. The high priest has already answered them in his prayer. So if you will, join me as we look at this prayer once more. As we read verses 6 through 10, and as we dive into the truths that are revealed therein. John 17. 
I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are our true high priest, that you are the one who purified us, you are the one who prayed for us, and you are the one who revealed the Father to us. Lord, we pray that as we analyze today sort of this idea of what does it mean that we are saved based off of your high priestly prayer, Lord, I pray that we would see the fullness of what that means. Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty in what that means. And Lord, I pray that we would have right views of what your salvation accomplishes. Lord, I pray that as we examine these texts, that they would become real and near and dear to our own lives and hearts. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would invigorate us to holy life and holy living. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, Jesus finishes his prayer for himself, which is verses 1 through 5, where he prays for his own glory. And that's a pre-incarnational glory, the glory he had forever with the Father. And it's also an incarnational glory where he will win the salvation of his people. Today, we're going to shift to the prayer that he prays for us. What does it mean that you and I are his? What does it mean that we're going to be saved? What does that mean? Now, I'll tell you, that does not mean he's not praying for everyone here. He is not praying for the entire world. He is praying only for his people. He does not pray for the reprobate here. And that is not guesswork for the Savior. He knows the ones who are his. And he prays for them and for them alone. This is a specific group of people that has been hand-selected by the Father, given over to Jesus Christ. He prays for them, the elect, and no one else in this prayer. He does not pray for the world. He says so himself. Now, this is a very difficult doctrine for us in the modern world. We immediately conjure up things of, well, this isn't fair. Well, if we're speaking of fairness, none of us deserve to be saved, and all of us deserve to die and go to hell. So if it's a fairness argument, I think all of us lose. It's not about fairness. It's about God's election that we're talking about. And I understand that it's a, it's a tough doctrine. The Lord is immeasurably sovereign, He's holy and perfect in all of his wisdom. He has unlimited goodness and perfect moral judgment, and he's done something to offend you. I get it. We who are sovereign over nothing. We who are unholy and lacking in all wisdom. We whose goodness doesn't even move the scales of justice, and we whose morality is shaky at best. I understand why you're offended. <laughs> Truthfully, brothers and sisters, we're not in the position to even speak on these matters. Like Job, who stands in front of the mountain and he says, I've spoken about things that are far too wonderful for me to understand. I repent. And then God gives him two more chapters on why Job was not in a position to speak on such holy, beautiful and lovely things. 
You and I are just not in the position to be able to cry foul on this particular topic. If we were NBA referees, we would be blind trying to make calls, blinded by our sin and by our depravity and by our finitude. Sometimes you think the refs are blind. We actually are. If you and I picked salvation and damnation, if you and I were in charge of it, it would be sinful because there would be ways that our sinfulness and our selfishness and our, and, and our human finitude would creep into our decision-making to where we said, well, this person is saved because I like them or this person is not. Our sinfulness would get in the way. But brothers and sisters, do not project your finitude and your sinfulness and your selfishness onto God. Because God can make these decisions on who is His and who is not with perfect holiness, with righteousness, with goodness, with, with love and grace and with His justice. He does not pray for the whole world. He prays for His people. Now, if He prays for His people alone, that means that there is a subset of people who are called His. And if there are a subset of people who are called his, there's also a subset of people who aren't. Which means that he doesn't pray for everyone. It also means that some will never belong to him. And that's scary. Because when salvation is not dependent upon our goodness and our ability and our righteousness and our strivings, we are entirely indebted to the grace of God. The only reason that anyone here is saved is not because you're better, smarter, more equipped than anyone else. It is because God in his gracious goodness has decided to overwhelm your sinfulness with his election. You are saved by the sheer pleasure and kindness of God. That means you have no room for boasting. You have no room for arrogance. You have no room for thinking that you're high and lofty and high and mighty. You are his by his good pleasure. I remember when I understood this, it broke my mind. Listen, I am not a guy who struggles to eat a good hamburger. But on the day that I discovered this, I couldn't eat. I took it back to my hotel room and I did eat it later. <laughs> but I didn't eat it then. The guy that I was sitting across from said, there's nothing that you can do. And I said, what do you mean there's nothing that I can do? There's nothing that I can do. He said, no, you're totally lost without God. And in that moment, the vulnerability hit me. There is nothing that I can do to be saved. If he picks me, he picks me. He chooses me for his glory. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. I can't manipulate it. I can't control it. I can't do anything to influence it. That is a vulnerable position to be in. And it is also a godly, lovely worshipful place to be in because if you are his you did not do anything to get there which means that all glory goes to the father all of our worship goes to him because we didn't do it if you love jesus at all it is because jesus first loved you if you care for him at all it's because he's first cared for you if you have kind affections for you. It's because he's turned his affections towards you. In our sin and in our death, we do not love God. He has to first love us. I was talking to my daughter about this and she said, it's my, it's my daughter Raylan, and she said, I don't understand. Why? why how, how is this possible? How, why, you know, people have to choose to, 
to follow Jesus. And I said, well, think about it like this. You walk into a room where there's a corpse laying in the coffin and you say, hey, I want you to follow Jesus. What is the corpse going to do? And she said, nothing. I said, you're right. Good thing you're taking biology in high school. I'm really proud of you. I said, now what if you yell really loud? Nothing. What if you, what if you put on a light show and you, and you do an evangelical worship service? Nothing. If that man or that woman wakes up, who is it going to be? The, what's going to be the only reason that they wake up? She said, because God brought them back to life. I said, that's it. When we're saved and we open our eyes and we cry out, dear Jesus, save me. The only reason that happens is because prior to that, when we were dead, a resurrection happened and your eyes got open and your heart got open and you said, I want Jesus. Yes, we cry out to Jesus. Yes, we say, please save me after we've been resurrected. That's the point. Jesus is praying for us who he rose from the dead. Not for the world, not for the goats, not for the tares, not for the chaff that he will drive away by his wrathful wind. He says that they come from the world because the spirit of the world is in them. The love of the things of the world is in them. He says that we have been resurrected out of the world so that we have a new heart, new passions, a new, and a new mind. But if he does not do that work in their life, they remain in the wells of the world and they cannot save themselves out of it. He passes them by. He prays. He doesn't pray against them in this prayer, but he doesn't pray for them. He passes them over because they are not in the Lamb's book of life, because they are not on the high priest's shoulders, because they are not on the high priest's breastplate. Now, you and I, you and I must pray for the world. Jesus is not praying for the world, but we must pray for the world. Why? Because we are not sovereign and we are not omniscient and we don't know whose are his. He knows perfectly whose are his, but we don't. He prays exactly and specifically for his, but we pray for everyone because we don't know who belongs to the Father. That's why if you have someone in your life, and I'm so thankful every week that we have prayer requests for people's salvation, because we don't know who the Father has chosen. If they're not dead, God's not done, and the only way that we know if someone is truly His or truly not is if He raises them from the dead in their life, and it could take years. There's people who are in your life right now who hate Jesus, who may come to faith in the future because of, because of His faithfulness in your prayers because of the preaching of the gospel and because of all of the means of grace that he uses, you pray for all people. Christ prays for you. That's the point. Now, beyond just praying for his people, it tells us a little bit about what salvation actually is. Verses 6, or verse 6 sort of opens up the door to that. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and I have kept your word. So we're talking about now salvation. And the word manifest is a little strange. I mean, it makes me feel like, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm wrong here. It makes me feel like a magician. Manifest. The word actually, the better word is revealed. Which I guess also could be used in magician stuff as well. But manifest, just, it's just a weird word to me. 
The word means revealed. That Jesus himself is the one who revealed the Father to us. He revealed, it says, his name. Now, you and I don't think about names like this. We don't walk up to anyone else with a five by seven card and reveal our name. The only thing you would do on that end is you would probably confuse people on why are you doing this. But when Jesus said that he revealed God's name, he is leaning into an ancient Semitic sort of cultural practice that the name is what it tells us about the identity of the person. When he says that he revealed the name of God, he's saying that he revealed the character of God to these people. He pulled back the curtain and showed them the Shekinah glory of the Father, and he did that for his disciples. He revealed God to them. That's what he's saying. I revealed God's character to them through revealing God's name. And how did Jesus do this for his disciples? How did he reveal the character of the Father by revealing the Father's name? John 14, 9 tells us explicitly. Jesus said to them, have, have I been so long with you and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is telling them that, that I and the Father are one. So Jesus, over the course of his life, is revealing who the Father is by revealing who he is to them. The revelation of Jesus Christ is showing them who the Father is. If you want to know the Father, you must know the Son. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 gets that sort of the same thing. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows, or, and nor does anyone know the Father except through the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal Him. The only way to know the Father is through the Son. And the only way to know the Father is through the Son is if the Son chooses to reveal the Father to you. Jesus is telling us that no one can know the Father apart from revelation. And no one can know the Son without the Father choosing them. Therefore, all of this is an entirely God-centric salvation where the Father must choose you out of the world and the Son must reveal the Father to you so that you will know Him. If those two things are not true, you do not know God. Colossians 1.15 is another example. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 is another example. He is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power, which he had uh, when he had made purification of sins. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is uncovering. Jesus is praying. He is revealing to us that salvation is first a two-part work. It is the work of God the Father electing you and drawing you to the feet of Jesus Christ. And when you are in front of Jesus Christ, it is Christ awakening you and revealing to you the nature of the Father. Those two things are critical to understand when it comes to our salvation. Our salvation is not the fact that we woke up and we realized how bad we were and we picked him. He seeks. He saves the lost. He reveals. He awakens. He opens up the eyes. That's his work before it's ever our declaration. Now, when he says them, he says, I revealed this to them. I think first and foremost, we need to acknowledge that he's talking about his 12 disciples. These are the men who were his pupils for three years. The ones who saw every miracle, heard every sermon, who sat in on the campfire Bible studies that he did where, where they were gathering together in, uh, you know, off the record, as it were, that wasn't revealed in the Gospels. 
For three years he spent this time with them, teaching them who he is so that they would know who the Father is. But also, this applies to us as well. This is not a reality that is lost in the pages of the New Testament. It works its way down to us. How? Because we were saved the exact same way. The apostles took the word of God and declared it. And through the preaching of the word, the father picked and chose his people that he knew before the foundations of the world and drew them by the preaching of the word to Christ. And then in their salvation, Christ revealed to them the father. All the men and women who were saved in the Roman Empire in that first century were saved that way. The preaching of the word drew them to Christ. Christ revealed the father. And in that revelation, their lives were completely transformed and they were changed. And they were changed into the kind of people who went out and declared the word. And then the cycle started over. They declared the word. Men and women were drawn to Christ. Christ revealed the Father. And he sent them out to do it again and again and again for the last 2,000 years. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is the story of the word of God winning his people. Christ revealing the Father to them and sending them out to do it again and again and again. Every person who's ever been saved has been saved that way. Now, let's transition because I want to hit on that last point a little bit harder as we close. Because in American Christianity, there's been a sort of easy believism that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about. There's been a cheap grace. There has been a finish line Christianity that is set in that has caused a nation full of converts to not go deeper in Christ and to not ever become disciples. Where we've treated salvation like it's the finish line. Well, I'm really glad I'm saved. Now I've done that. Brothers and sisters, salvation is not the finish line. It's the starting line. This is why a culture of hyper-evangelistic Christianity, tele-evangelist, regular evangelist, and let's save as many possible people as we can without making a single disciple has proliferated in this culture where we have a nation that is filled with toddlers in the faith that have never been discipled. And because of that, we treat salvation like it is the end unto itself instead of the beginning of everything. After justification in the Bible comes sanctification. Jesus says in this passage that although the Father did choose and although the Son did reveal, there's more to it than that. That's the beginning of our life. That's the beginning, John 17, 3, of the eternal life. And the first thing that he tells us is that we will come under his lordship and love his word. For all who are truly saved, they will love His Word. They will keep His Word. That is, not a, that is not a suggestion. That is a reality. Look at what it says in verse 6. You gave them to me, and they have kept your Word. This is not what we've joked about many times before. This is not a might could. This is not a might would or a might should. They... Jesus gave them, or Jesus revealed the Father to them. God gave them over to the Son. And because of that, then they kept His Word and they loved His Word. He doesn't say that when the Father gives them over to them, they're going to fail to grow and they're going to basically be immature for the rest of their life. He does not say that. 
He doesn't say that they're going to limp along in mediocrity for the rest of their life and they're never going to advance in their faith. He doesn't say that they're going to be lukewarm, uninvolved, and unconvicted compromisers for the rest of their life. He does not say that. And I'm pressing on this not to offend. I'm pressing on this because Jesus says in the scriptures that if you're lukewarm, he will spit you out of his mouth. There's no expectation for a Christian to remain immature for the rest of their life. It's just not there. All throughout the scriptures, we are to grow up into maturity of Christ. We're to grow deeper into the gospel of Christ. We're to have more passion as we get older, more love for the word, more obedience. These things are not antithetical to the Christian life. I've preached the gospel in a sermon before, and I preached obedience at the end as the outworking of the gospel, and somebody called me a legalist for that. Because we're afraid to obey Jesus lest we do it for the wrong reasons. Yes, of course we will pervert anything. But the expectation of our life is not that we would live in obediousness-less. The expectation for our life is not that we would avoid obedience for fear that we might get it wrong. The expectation is as children of the living God that we would grow up into better obedience, that we would follow him. If my children said, Dad, I don't want to obey you because I don't want to get a big head. Are you kidding me? You'd have a swollen bottom for that. <laughs> this is how we treated God, though. God, I don't want to obey you so I don't get a big head. What? That makes no sense. He elects us. Jesus reveals the Father to us to transform us, to make us love Him more, to make us worship Him better, to make us obey Him more and more. This process is called sanctification, and that process of sanctification is bringing you under the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that you forget your thoughts you forget your opinions and you forget your need for control and you become a faithful slave of Jesus. Listen, the, Christianity is not a glamorous life. If you want that, go to Scientology or, or go to Mormonism where you can one day be a god of your own universe. Christianity is not a glorious life. You're a slave. And your happiness as a slave is dependent totally upon your submission to the master. The more you submit to the master, the more happy and joyful you will become. That is what Christianity is all about. Christianity is a religion of joy, and it's the only religion that's actually true. But my point in that is that it's a religion of great joy, and the joy doesn't come from pumping yourself up. The joy comes from putting your face on the ground and saying, I follow you, Christ, whatever you say, whatever you want. You are my king. I am not the one in charge. You want me to give my whole life to you? Okay, you gave your whole life for me. You mean to, you want to be in your word? Okay, Bible says you're the word. I want you. So I'm going to be in your word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to be like David, and I'm going to stay awake at night, and I'm going to run after you and chase after you, and I'm going to lose sleep over that because I want you. We've got to get away from this idea that we're somehow afraid of obedience, or we've got more important things to do. This country is falling apart because Christians for 50 years have had more important things to do. We've been elected. We've been justified. He has revealed the Father to us, not for nothing. 
but so that we would serve him and obey him and love him and love his word. And second thing, this is the last thing, that we would not just love his word, but that we would rest in his sovereignty. Verses seven through eight says this. Now they come, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and they truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I can imagine the smile and the joy on Jesus's face where he's praying this prayer to his father in all of the agony and all of the anguish and all of the pain that he's getting ready to face on the cross. He admits here that after three years of ministry, they've understood finally that I came from you, that my words came from you, that my behavior came from you, that everything in all reality, Father, comes from you. Jesus' choice of the disciples came from God. Jesus' words that he spoke, he said, I don't speak my own words, I only speak what the Father tells me to, came from God. Jesus' actions, he said, I am showing you the Father. I'm not showing you me, I'm showing you the Father. So his actions didn't come from him, they came from God. The Son himself didn't come on his own initiative. He came because God sent him, so he came from God. What we're learning and what Jesus' disciples learned after three years is that everything comes from God. And that is where true Christian joy rests, is knowing that everything comes from God. There is nothing in your life that happens to you that doesn't come from God. Unless you want to say that God isn't sovereign. All your joys come from God. All your pains come from God. All your ups come from God and all your downs come from God. The word came from God. The son came from God. And every event that happens in your life comes from a good God who loves you and wants to sanctify you according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, if I could employ you to understand anything, it would be the sovereignty of God in this when you understand that nothing happens inside of your life, nothing happens to you that's outside of his sovereign care and love and control, you can rest at night, you can sleep at night, and you're untouchable as a Christian. When you get that, Paul says it took him to the end of his life to get that, so it's not easy. He said, at the end of his life, he said, I've learned the secret of contentment. So if it took Paul a long time, it's going to take us a long time. But brothers and sisters, we have to understand that everything comes from God. God is good. God loves you. He gave you every situation in your life because he loves you. Do not look at your situations that you're going through right now and say, why is God doing this to me? Answer your own question and say, because he loves me. That pain, that brokenness, that disease, that misfortune, that family member, that whatever it is. When you look at your life and your situations, you say, why is this happening to me? Answer yourself. Don't let yourself speak to you. You speak back to yourself and you say, this is happening because God loves me. This is happening because he cares for me. This is happening because he wants me to grow. And when you believe that, when you understand that, no one can steal your joy because you're not a victim anymore. You're a slave of the king who loves you and everything he's given you is for your good. You can't be attacked. You can't be, you'd be like Paul in prison who sings whenever they arrest him. You'd be like the disciples who leap for joy because they were counted worthy of suffering. It crushes the flesh inside of us and makes us actually free 
when we realize that nothing happens to us outside of the sovereign will of God. You can't be paralyzed when you believe that. You, you won't get angry or upset when you believe that. And your peace will never be taken from you when you believe that. And the last thing I would just say is, brothers and sisters, these things are not suggestions. The sovereign Christ prayed them for you. And if there's any person that has ever prayed a prayer that I would expect would come true, it is not me or you. It is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, know and rest and trust in his sovereign plans and purposes for you. Dive in and learn his word. Be a disciple, not just a convert. And you will have true joy and peace. No one can take it from you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you prayed this prayer for us. You prayed it first and foremost for your disciples, but through the preaching of the word and through the manifold means of grace, these treasures, these promises have worked their way down to us and they're ours. Lord, I pray that we as your people would not forget what salvation actually means. The first thing that it means is that you elected us by no power of our own, and, you, and God, you drew us to the feet of your beloved Son. And then we know that the Son and his love and care for us and obedience to the Father revealed the Father to us so that we were awakened, we were regenerate, we were justified. Our minds and our hearts were made alive again. And in that, we came to declare the gospel that it is this gospel that saved us. We became alive again. Lord, I pray that in our living, that we would not treat our election and our justification as the end of our faith. Lord, I pray that for whatever many years we have left on this earth, that we would not treat our salvation as the finish line and that we get to spend the rest of our lives doing whatever we want. Lord, the beauty of the Christian gospel is that our salvation is just the beginning. Lord, let all of us who are saved count the cost and let all of us who are saved run after you. Explore and dive into and love your word. Rest and trust in your sovereignty. And Lord, help us, all of us here, to die to ourselves so that we may be alive in you. Lord, I pray for all of us here that that would become increasingly true over the course of our lives. And it would become increasingly true in our children. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.